1: This is the West Enterprise Center Start and Grow Your Business podcast. Our guest on this segment is the executive director of a unique supported living program called Great Living. Entrepreneur Matt Pohl co created the company Great Living with Stephen Nadolny, and he joins us on the line now from their offices in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Matt, welcome to the program. Thank you. Tell us the story, the creation of Great Living. How did the project come to you?
2: Uh, the project came to uh, both Steve and I. I've been a therapist, a behavior support consultant on the developmental disability waiver for the past eight, nine years, and met Stephen Adolny through this. And we have been providing behavior support consultation to people with developmental disabilities, uh, which means they are, have a diagnosis of mental retardation or a traumatic brain injury, cerebral palsy, autism—that group of diagnoses. Yeah. And Steve, I, I met Steve at this training, and I, I really uh, liked, you know, the questions he was asking and things he was saying, and it uh, dawned on me that we could better implement uh, our philosophy as uh, behavior support consultants if we owned the residential agency. That mm. way we could have more of a clinical-based stint on how the residential end of things is provided to these people.
1: Matt, at the time, were were you dealing with others, uh, in other words, property owners, and putting your clients, patients into these uh, facilities?
2: Well, they're not really my patients per se. The, The way that the system works, the way the developmental disability waiver works in New Mexico is the individual receives money through Medicaid, which the DD waiver is a carve-out. It's a a carve-out of funding that is provided to these people with those diagnoses I described earlier. Mm -hmm. And uh, basically the waiver, what they're waiving is their right for institutional care. So the DD waiver is the state's answer to institutions um, and really is designed to provide wraparound services people with developmental disabilities and incorporate them into mainstream society. Okay. So with that carved out money that they get based on their their level of, of need, they can get residential care, they can get any therapy under the sun from behavior support consultation to physical therapy, occupational therapy, speech therapy, vocational services to help people find jobs and getting them out in community, um, Dayhab type services. Once again, just integration into the community is what fuels and, and pushes pushes uh, all of the services. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. what it was before is I was as, as a behavior support consultant. Basically, I was seen as an ancillary support, and I would come into other agencies, such as the one that uh, we started, Great Living, and offered suggestions, made recommendations. Hey, I think uh, this plan would really help this individual get through the day because of a lack of uh, cognition or because of tendencies in frustration, whatever the need may be, I would come in and train uh, some other agency, residential agency staff. Yeah. So it um, sounds like, and, yeah, I'm sorry, please continue. Oh, so they would either um, accept my, my recommendations or not, and so having control being the boss of the residential agency, we can create the infrastructure based on our clinical ideas.
1: Got it. It integrates the, uh, the facility with your expertise. And uh, what a great opportunity for you to uh, implement what used to be suggestions. Now they actually become policy for your uh, group at Great Living. Give us a sense of, uh, of, of sort of how the property piece works. Are, are these uh, single-family homes? Are they multi-units uh, facilities where uh, um, the folks you're helping live? Give, give us a sense of that physical piece.
2: This could be your next-door neighbor the houses and apartments and wherever these individuals choose to live. It occurs in in several ways, but basically it is mine or your house and either individuals already live there and they just need the uh, staffing, which we refer to as coaches Um, up to 24 hours a day. We provide transportation. uh, We provide support, you know, help with, with uh, medic medication administration. we, provide um anything you would need for everyday living yeah we we yeah. can provide and it occurs either in their own homes or homes that we help them find so you have
1: a, a lot of employees i'm guessing or freelance uh, 1099 give us a sense of the human capital what does it take to put um a group of folks together and, and tell us who's working for you and and uh, how the how you work with people
2: Sure, sure. it it really varies uh based on the individual's level of, of need right now, I think we have a staff totaling twenty three twenty four something like that, and we have i think nine clients that we're serving okay, um, so
1: it gives you a sense of, of how twenty four hours kind of spreads over nine clients yeah
2: exactly, exactly
1: from the entrepreneurial perspective, Matt Paul, how did you and Stephen initially fund this startup
2: out of pocket? Where where I I don't know if that's what uh, a grassroots
1: company yeah. Yeah. would
2: be defined as you'd call it a, but, uh, a
1: bootstrap I think is the technical term.
2: <laughs> there you have it. Yeah, Steve and I uh, started it with uh, our own money. We we had either savings or pulled money out mm-hmm. and uh, started it.
1: You do own the properties, right, or you mortgage them?
2: I have one right now, soon to be two properties that uh, that that I own. Or you're right, like you said, that that uh, the bank and I own together. But that isn't the only place that the people we serve live. Okay. They live in other homes. Like I said, if uh, they are not forced to just live in those homes. Those are just options. One of the, the main pushes uh, that we have is to really push person-centered uh, service, which goes from paying attention to how people wake up in the morning to where people want to live, who they want to live with. Do they want to learn how to ride the bus, or do they, you know, they're, they're not there for that? I mean, we do push independence as, that, that is another one of the, the driving forces. But all of our services really, as best we can, try to focus on, a fr- from a person-centered place. When
1: you and Stephen started talking, did you feel that that was sorely missing from the facilities you were working with at the time? That idea of person-centered?
2: <laughs> I think that's where the DD waiver has been trying to go since uh, New Mexico shut down the institutions, which happened in the uh, late 70s, early 80s. There was a big push, I think nationally, um, to really serve uh, people with disabilities in a different way. Mm. And, uh, you know, New Mexico's evolution, every state has its own particular evolution. And I think that uh, New Mexico started in the late 80s, or I'm sorry, early 80s, late 70s, early 80s, and uh, by by creating the dd waiver and it's 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 going more and more in that direction but i mean based on our starting point where it was institutional care which is a you know very medical model and yeah. very uh, gl- globalized care for a lot of people it's not really individualized uh, i think we've come a long way and so i think that uh you know finances and uh Policy, you know, st- state regulations and stuff are moving forward, but they also cause hindrances. They they, they create their their own uh, dynamic that we have to work around.
1: We're visiting with Matt Paul. He's the executive director of Great Living. It's a unique supported living program that uh, he created, co-created with Stephen Nadolny. Uh, When you talk about policy and you talk about all the headwinds that state governments, city governments are facing now, what are your biggest worries moving forward with Great Living?
2: Well, obviously, uh, the finances. Uh, Are they going to make budget cuts from a system that is already at bare minimum? I think a lot of the issues that arise from uh, residential in particular, because it is a 24-hour service and it does take a certain level of skill and, and knowledge base, to to perform, not having funding to pay employees uh, appropriately or to provide uh, benefit packages, those types of things, so that we can continue to serve effectively. Uh, yes, are are always you know there are obvious concerns.
1: Yes, well for all businesses, but particularly, let me ask: Is are most or all of your revenues coming from the DD waiver, or are there other sources of revenue in your mix?
2: We are uh, right now exclusively receiving money through the DD waiver. There are other waivers. There's a Mevia waiver uh, that has its own standards and uh, set sort of guidelines to to abide by that uh, people with disabilities can receive service money from. That we we have served in the past and we'd serve again. Our office is located in a business incubator, West Enterprises, that has been very instrumental and. Continues to be instrumental in helping us come up with other ideas on where maybe we could receive either actual money or services and benefit packages uh, for for our employees yeah. and yeah. and for. Uh, the clients the people that we serve
1: extraordinary work you're doing at great living this idea of community is huge for uh the way you administrate your program i know that from the materials i've reviewed a lot of um, extracurricular activities that uh, get worked in to uh, your clients lives tell us a little bit about the range of activities you uh, help them participate in
2: sure i mean again it, it is very person-centered and uh the the funny part is is that uh, the sky is the limit. Uh, we have people that are involved in remote control car clubs, to uh, collecting baseball cards, to working at Sunflower. Wow! Uh, the push is always to encourage and teach and show, uh, uh, get, create opportunity for age-appropriate stuff. Um, I think for the, for a very long time, people with disabilities, uh, in particular, people with uh, a diagnosis of mental retardation, have been seen as kids. And, uh, you know, a 45-year-old person with mental retardation has very different needs than a 5-year-old. Even though they may react uh, in similar ways in certain circumstances, Mm. their needs are very different. Mm. And the way they view the world is very different. So instead of, you know, being uh, accepting of playing with Legos, it's, no, let's go out and, I don't know, try to get a job at the Lego factory, something something along those lines. Yes, yes. I mean, we don't have a Lego factory in Albuquerque. That's just an example. Matt,
1: as you and Steven look at your company, um, do you have a growth plan? I mean, what does it look like down the horizon for you guys as you continue to um, evolve as a company, serving your current clientele, which I'm sure is paramount? But uh, is there a growth trajectory to this idea?
2: Sure. There sure is. And, and that, that's always evolving also. I'm, I'm sure you can imagine. But when we first started out, our business plan started off with opening two houses, providing care to two to three new clients per house per year. So that would be four to six new clients per year, up to about 36 individuals, which would equal roughly 12 houses. Mm. Uh in addition to that, there are other services that we are going to uh, provide. One is behavior support consultation to, to help us implement in a more uh, mainstream internal fashion uh, the clinical stint. Ah. and uh, in addition to and and the other service that we would provide is uh, supported employment and job developing. Mm. I think those three services really go hand in hand with providing a, a clinical avenue on how to encourage independence and uh, teaching skills in, in a clinical concept versus just kind of shooting from the hip. And, and we can, you know, S- Steve and I having our backgrounds as clinicians can kind of tease that out, who we would hire for that type of job, the direction that we would want to take, what type of, uh, of avenue would we want to take, like a strict behavioral kind of stint or a skill-based type of, of, inter, uh, of intervention. And then in addition to that, uh, really having a sector of great living be focusing strictly on creating relationships in the community uh, and in even outside communities That it, that is pushing the word for, hey, what about including people with developmental disabilities in your business? Having job opportunities and creating relationships so that we can open the door at least for uh, the people with the, the people that we serve.
1: Well, it's extraordinary work you're doing. Great Living is the company we've been visiting with. Matt Paul, he's the co-creator and executive director. His partner, Stephen Nadolny. Uh, Matt, uh, congratulations on the progress you're making with this model, and uh, and also uh, the extraordinary work you're doing for the community and for these individuals. The website is www. Just like it sounds, GreatLiving.com, located in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Matt, thanks for joining us on the program. Thank you. Small Small America. The brain. Camille F. Bishop, Ph.D., asks, Why can't we all just get along? In her new book, We're in This Boat Together, she stages a dramatic whitewater rafting journey with four principal characters to illustrate and examine the profound differences between generations in terms of how they work, think, and lead. Camille is a career educator with about 30 years of international teaching experience. And she says that the face of leadership is changing in companies across America, and the stakes have never been higher. Joining us live on the line is Camille F. Bishop. She's the author of We're in This Boat Together. Camille, welcome to The Small Biz Brain.
3: Thank you so much, David. It's great to be with you today. So the book
1: features four unique and very different characters who set out on this journey uh, and a company, and the company is called Hand Over Company, which I, I love that. It's a team-building whitewater rafting trip. And uh, so these four characters plus a guide, who I know is pivotal. Why the rafting trip?
3: Well, I use the whitewater rafting metaphor because I think that transition is often very tumultuous. And I went on a whitewater rafting trip many years ago, and a little little. Uh, that I know that it was going to be Class 4 or 5 rapids, and um, it was so stomach-churning. I thought, what better metaphor to use when you talk about leadership transition.
1: Is it about the danger and about the journey and, and uh, about how fear crystallizes, how relationships work?
3: Yes, and it's also about the challenges. You know, when you think about whitewater rafting, each ra- each rapid represents a unique challenge, and you have to really pull together to be able to make it through. And each of the four generations that are currently in the workplace have their own strengths and their own weaknesses, and if we can understand one another better, know where we're coming from, we can pull together better.
1: Right. So you have four principal characters. They're each representing, as you say, their own generation's unique uh, style. Um, Let's walk through the four main characters, Nate, Brianna, Brad, and George, and and perhaps also the guide, and and find out how you... Characterize each of these generations, and of course, the characters.
3: Sure, I'd be glad to do that. Well, we'll start off with George. He's a member of the Silent Generation, and George's generation came along right after the World War II generation. They are very traditional in their in their approach to the work and leadership. They tend to be quite frugal and financially conservative. They have very typically have defined gender very defined gender roles. They certainly didn't grow up with computers. And um, they're very value-based, very moral people. Then you've got Brad the Boomer. And, of course, that's my generation. So I had a lot of fun working with that particular character. And Brad is the kind of guy that he's also very loyal, very responsible, willing to work hard. But he's also certainly thinking about retirement. Whereas George, he just wants to keep on working. Mm. And then Brianna is the Gen Xer. And she's trying to juggle the demands of home and, and family life as well as the workplace. She and her husband have more of a, an egalitarian type of marriage where they're sharing responsibilities. And then we've got Nate, the millennial, and Nate is totally into the Internet. He's very savvy, able to multitask, and, um, but much more in, interested in a relationship and in negotiating what he will and won't do.
1: Fabulous. Now, it seems that Daniela is a very pivotal character. At least I, I felt that way. Um, how how did you think about her role as it relates to this entire journey?
3: That's really an interesting question, David. Um, Daniela, of course, is a Swiss-German uh, rafting guide, and I think I picked her character because I lived for five years in Germany, uh-huh. and I remembered very clearly how direct that particular culture is and how you, I felt like I needed a a rafting guide who would be very directive and who would be able to get them through the journey.
1: Mm. As I look through uh, page 107, you say, for the millennials, this is a no-brainer, relationships rule. Right. So as you progress through the four generations and thinking about them, how important is the value of relationships for each of these characters relative to the work itself?
3: Well, for each one of them, relationship is important, but I think that each generation is um, unique in the way that they draw the lines. For example, in George's generation, you go to work, you come home. And work is work and home is home, and they really made a pretty clear distinction between those two places. And especially in regards to leadership, they didn't expect their leader or their director or manager at work to have that much of a personal relationship with them. That just wasn't part of the scenario. You come down to the boomers, it's pretty much similar. The boomers, of course, were the first generation to say, don't trust anyone over 30, Uh, more cautious of leadership. Then you come down into the Gen Xers and the millennials, and relationship starts to become extremely important, partly because I think we've undergone so many societal changes. Mm. These two generations have experienced an escalating divorce rate, Um, A lot of times these younger workers have grown up in homes where the father figure perhaps was absent or not totally emotionally there, and they are really looking for a sense of family. And for them, relationship is everything, on the job and off the job. So I think that is actually one of the really unique differences between the generations in the workplace today.
1: We're visiting with Camille F. Bishop. She's the author of We're In This Boat Together. Camille, do you have a website that you'd like to point us to?
3: Uh, I'm actually working on a website, um, and that website's address is camillebishop.com, and it's under construction.
1: Okay. When do you expect it to go live? So we have a date reference for this podcast.
3: I hope it to go live by March 1st.
1: Okay. Thanks for that. March 1st, 2009, folks. Let's get into transition a little bit. What does an organization really need to understand about itself in order to facilitate a successful transition of leadership? And then, and then given the overlay of the multi-generational uh, approach that you've taken to this story.
3: Well, I think it's very helpful when an organization, first of all, understands its vision and where it's going into the future. And whether or not that vision, perhaps the original vision, has actually changed somewhere along the line, and they need to really recognize that. And secondly, they need to understand that there are generational differences in the way people perceive leadership. And from that perspective, when you're thinking about a leadership transition, they need to understand, well, how am I going to bring everyone into this process? So if you've got older workers, say, in their 60s or 70s, that's more of the silent generation, uh, which is represented by George, they're pretty much used to just taking orders, um, don't ask a lot of questions, automatically trust the leadership, whereas your younger workers are not coming from that place at all. They want to be included. They want their voice to be heard. They want to be more collaborative. And they want to have a sense that someone really cares about their voice.
1: It sounds as though the tone of all of this or the spirit is that no way uh, is better or more effective than the other. Is that a fair statement?
3: I think that's a very fair statement, David. It's not really about one way being better than another. It's about understanding that there are several there are many different ways to approach leadership and that certain, that that the generational piece has come in with the way society and culture was when that generation grew up, and that has shaped a lot of their perceptions about leadership.
1: So for an individual, the challenge, I suppose, is to really understand that you're grounded in a zeitgeist, the certain time period that shaped how you think, and then to come into empathy so that you could, so that George can appreciate Nate. Is, is, is that more or less how this shapes up?
3: That's exactly right, David. I like that term zeitgeist because that's exactly what it is in a sense. The whole, many people really ha- are skeptical about the whole issue about generational differences, but if you go to the, you know, the, the research, especially in sociology, you'll see that it's been a, a prominent topic since the 1800s, and that is that certain historical events happen in each generation, and it actually can have such a formative um, effect on them that it shapes a particular way of thinking that actually can last their lifetime.
1: Tell us what other activities you're involved with. Are you continuing to write? I I know you're an educator. Are you still active there? What kinds of things are you working on?
3: Well, actually, I'm really interested in writing another book along the same lines, except looking at culture and leadership rather than generations and leadership. Mm -hmm. When I did my initial research, I actually did both of these, both variables in the research, but I just narrowed it down to one when I wrote this particular book. But I'd like to also write one related to the difference in leadership perception based on culture, because I think this is another huge challenge for us in the global uh, economy that we are facing and the global business world that we're living in right now.
1: We are seeing a, a market increase in, in diversity in the workplace, aren't we?
3: Absolutely. And it's not going to go away. Uh, globalization, I mean, if, you, if anyone's read the book, uh, The World is Flat by Thomas Friedman. yes, yeah, wonderful. This is the trend you know, and the world has flattened itself in the last five to 10 years. You've got India, China has come full force into the, you know, into the working, the global the global workforce. And that's just only going to continue. So the diversity is only going to increase, not decrease.
1: Is there a way that small business owners or leaders within maybe midsize or even larger businesses can help facilitate the kind of empathy that uh, this story illustrates?
3: I think so. I think a lot of it has to do with just good, honest communication, having opportunities for people to discuss these potential uh, differences, perhaps potential uh, tension points. But that doesn't mean that we have to build barriers against one another or label one another or create stereotypes. I think communication, honest communication that builds trust And that helps us understand one another and work together more effectively is so important. I think one of the books that really inspired me to write my book uh, is called The Five Dysfunctions of a Team. And the greatest dysfunction is not having any trust among one another. Mm. And I think that's part of the key of helping us become more empathetic towards one another.
1: Yeah, we've learned that trust makes markets, trust makes cultures.
3: That's exactly right.
1: Absolutely. The book is is wonderful. Uh, Stories can do so much. It's called We're In This Boat Together. I've been visiting with Camille F. Bishop, Ph.D. She's the author of the book. This is available where, Camille?
3: Well, you can get it on many different places on the Internet. Probably the number one place would be Amazon.com. Mm-hmm. It's also av- available Borders. dot com, Noble dot com, Million. dot com. So it's not in the bookstores. You know, today in today's publishing world, you have to have a lot of upfront financial. Resources to get your book in the bookstore and yes. find a first-time author. But on the Internet, you can find it.
1: Terrific. And uh, if you're listening on smallbizamerica.com, there'll be a link as well to the Amazon, uh, so you can buy it right there from the post. Camille, thanks so much for a rich segment uh, around this important subject. Camille F. Bishop, and that's at uh, com- uh, coming soon. Camille Bishop, that's uh, C-A-M-I-L-L-E, Bishop, Com in uh, right. March of 2009. That site will be live. Thanks for, so much for joining us on the Small Biz Brain. Thank you,
3: Dave. Small Biz America. The Brain. This podcast is produced by Small Biz America. Small Biz. Small Biz America.
1: Thanks for listening to the West Enterprise Center Start and Grow Your Business podcast. For more information, visit us at west.org.